In this podcast, Pamela Branchick talks to Adrian Miller, the Deputy Vice President of Indigenous Engagement at Central Queensland University. Hello. Hi, how you doing? Just thank you. Not too bad. Yeah. Good, nice to see you again. Thank you so much for making yourself available for this. What made you gravitate towards academia? It was almost by chance that I, I stumbled across a position. It was sort of semi-government, semi-university. It was a program that was funded from the government to support Indigenous students in higher education. But it was, it was not operating very well under a government uh, administration. And the government knew that. that were, there was a gap in the kind of way it was administered and that required someone to have some insight into undergraduate programs at higher education. So I was just almost stumbled across it. And someone said, oh, you, are you looking for work? And I just finished my degree. And I said, absolutely. And um, are you interested in this? And I said, it sounds interesting. I'll have a go. Anyway, it was a really interesting experience because it was a, a way in which governments were outsourcing lots of Indigenous programs at the time. And it was a way in which universities could take an opportunity to administer government programs. And so after a little while, I, I managed to identify some huge challenges, having someone in between, someone nearly needed to be on the government side administering it or someone on the higher education side administering it. But ultimately, the government thought they could save money by outsourcing it to to the university. And it was one of our test universities, one, the first test university in Australia to do it. And I fortunately fell into that role. And uh, I did that for a brief period. And I wrote quite a large document outlining the benefits of transitioning that program to the university. And um, it was successful. And I, I ran that for, for a little while. And then another academic role came up proper academic role came up teaching and I decided to go for it. Was successful at that. So it was just kind of this small doorway that opened to a larger doorway and then I, I managed to get into an academic role of teaching. I enjoyed teaching and even though I, I don't think I was very good at it at the beginning and I freely admit that I did seek mentorship and I kind of reflected on my own lecturers and how they delivered and thought, well, I knew that would, that guy was particularly boring, so I won't try to repeat. So it was almost like a reflective practice kind of approach yeah. until I got my own kind of style. Yeah. yeah. And so I stuck with teaching for many years, and it was almost my Achilles heel towards, I suppose, towards the end of my teaching career because I really wanted to advance in my positions, and I couldn't do that without doing research. So I stayed within teaching for as long as I could. It's, it's hard work teaching, um, and, and I ended up with quite large classes. I think when I stopped teaching large classes, I think my biggest class was something around the 400 mark. Wow. And that was, you know, uh, I, and with limited resources, I had to be quite innovative with the kind and style of teaching that I needed to do. And so I also gravitated towards online learning and teaching uh, embraced all that technology, did podcasts like this and vodcasts as well and all sorts of things in the, in the mid-2000s. And that was that was really a good thing for me because I, I did some evaluation around that and thought it was working quite well. Yeah. Mm. But the challenges of staying in academia is that you need to do research. Um, yes. 
And so I really needed to pull myself away from the, the teaching role and learn and embrace a new form of uh, being an academic. So I wasn't a balanced academic at the time. I was 80% teaching. I was just dabbling with a bit of research. Yeah. And that wasn't going to help me progress as an academic. So I um, approached my director and head of school at the time and said, look, I've got some big challenges here. I'm interested in the work that you do, which is infectious diseases. Is there a role for me? And he just said, yeah, absolutely. He took me under his wing immediately. And from there, it was just an exponential kind of wow. sort of road of success and research, uh, which I don't know how it happens, but it, it just seemed to – I've just been very, very fortunate in that space, yeah. Well, quite prescient that it was infectious diseases that sparked it. Yes. <laughs> Yes, look, uh, it interests me because I was always surrounded by public health infectious disease experts. And so I was rubbing shoulders with people who had normal corridor conversations about this and that and this type of worm and that kind of parasite and this kind of virus. And, and I found it absolutely fascinating because my background isn't clinical public health. It's actually public policy and planning and, yeah. and look, kind of almost the boring dead brain kind of stuff that <laughs> students complain about. But I really wanted to get into the exciting stuff, which is which is what really was what my colleagues were doing. And the reason why I also was fascinated by it, I saw direct impact of their work. I saw some of my colleagues do amazing research and they were, had impact on saving lives. Yes. And I thought, that's pretty amazing. Uh, so applied public health research really, really attracted me. Yeah, so infectious diseases was, was something that I, I had made it my own. I wasn't an epidemiologist. I'm still not an epidemiologist, but I, I investigated the reasons, the gaps behind why people are still remaining sick despite treatments available. Right. So I think you can keep looking at the same problem over and over again in different angles, and quite often that's what public health people do and try to look for new ways to analyse the same disease. But at the end of the day, if no one's been cured by that or recovering or getting a level of, you know, quality of life, then you have to start to wonder, there is something else besides treatment going on here. Mm -hmm. So people have access to treatment, but there's something else. And so there's things around systematic racism that has emerged in my research and also a bunch of other things that, that qualitative research actually highlights. Yeah, yeah, okay. And in your current role, what are the rewards and challenges for leading Indigenous engagement within the university? The rewards are simply being able to do, in my role now, being able to think of something and doing it. And that's been a challenge for me in other roles because quite often I've been hindered by the level in which I'm at the university. But at a senior level like this, I pitch an idea to my senior colleagues, particularly my vice chancellor, and if it makes sense and doesn't <laughs> doesn't cost too much, or it, or I find the money for it, he says go for it. So that's the kind of reward is that I, I'm I'm actually exploring some of the things I've been thinking about for the last 20 years, and now being able to apply them. So it's taken me a long time to get to the opportunity where I can do the things that I've been thinking about. And because I've had such a long time to think about it, it feels like they're working as well. So I've had a long time to reflect over 
the mistakes that I've made myself, but also I've seen in others and knowing that I don't want to repeat that. Yeah. Uh, so I'm doing things a little bit differently and maybe maybe challenging some orthodoxies as well, which I'd like to do, but not in a way that oh, whatever you're doing, it doesn't make sense to me to stop doing it. It's more like, okay, you've got a really interesting way of doing it. We've done that before, by the way. Hasn't proven to be very successful, but I'm going to, I'm going to do it this way. And that's the kind of conversations I have, not only externally, but internally in my head as well. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and when you recruiting senior staff, what are the key attributes you look for in that group? Apart from, you know, technical skills and experience. Uh, look, I think I'm looking for indications in my colleagues that they are willing to listen. Listening is the most important thing. I, and, and I know that sounds really quite simplistic, and it's a, but at the end of the day, if I've got something to say that's based on experience or based on my research or based on other people's research, and I present that argument in a logical and meaningful manner, and I notice that people listen to that, then I'm really, really willing to engage. And I'm also willing to, to compromise. If someone says, well, at this university, we've had these challenges, so that you might have to change your ways in this bit, but ultimately, we can do it. And to be honest, if someone shows that it's interest, and that's totally fine, I've got other things to do. And it's not offensive to me. It, it's certainly not something I'm going, getting angry or concerned about. It will be a case of where our synergies and interests intersect at another point, rather than trying to say, this is my way and please listen to me. At the end of the day, I think that working in academia, we're working with really, really smart people and you would expect a smart way to communicate or a way in which you can show your interest or disinterest without being offensive. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Do you think the rollout of telehealth will provide better health care to rural and Indigenous communities? I think it's totally necessary. I think we're on the cusp of something, seeing something really new and innovative. I think we're also on the cusp of seeing things that may be a sustainable model of health care as well. Quite often we've seen programs roll out in remote areas that are time-limited because of funding. Now, when you have telehealth, it's probably... Only one barrier, and that's connectivity. Mm. So you're not time-limited by resources anymore. So the cardiologist in Brisbane can Zoom or, or Skype or whatever, and people have done this quite a while already, but it's not resource-dependent anymore. So um, I think the IT infrastructure is actually being rolled out quite nicely, and I see that some, of our, big, some of our big telcos are doing it for free, in fact, in remote communities. The irony is that some of those communities have been asking for that connectivity for quite a while, and now a pandemic makes it more essential. So yeah. it, it almost seems like a human right now to have high-quality connectivity. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting how the pandemic has accelerated things, where something seemed years away and it's been possible to go out in weeks. Absolutely. <laughs> That's the extraordinary thing about it, the pressure of a pandemic. And, yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, so, yeah, there's some silver lining in some of this catastrophe. Mm -hmm. And as, I mean, you have to point out that it's, it's sustainable. That's huge. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So, you know, over the years I've heard of some incredibly good and successful health programs around eye care, ear, nose and throat care, all the things that affect Aboriginal children in particular, 
and some of them have just been defunded because of for whatever reasons. Now, we don't have that kind of excuse anymore. You know, yeah. <laughs> the endocrinologists, the, the specialists around the country can be at the end of a phone line these days. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. We recently conducted a survey of all board chairs across healthcare, universities and research institutes, the majority of whom said there was little Indigenous representation on their boards. Do you think there's a way we can start to improve this? I feel the effects of this quite often. I sometimes sit on many boards. I'm the only Indigenous person sitting there. And the challenges are quite often most of the board isn't culturally appropriate or sensitive or informed. And therefore, when you're the only board member or committee member that's there, do you pick your fights or your challenges or your confrontations? Absolutely. You don't do it at every whim of the, you know, because ultimately you've got to progress an agenda that's hopefully beneficial to people. But at the same time, it is challenging sitting there and being the only one there. And so, Building the capacity around governance training, for example, is absolutely crucial, but also building the capacity of boards to be culturally informed is also important. So it's just not about having, say, for example, a, you know, a quite a senior board and saying, oh, I think we need an Indigenous representative for some perspective on it. Let's just go and tap someone on the shoulder. But mm-hmm. I think the board needs to be prepared for the difficult conversations that board member might raise or the challenging conversations that can't be dismissed. And so I think there's an equal balance of capacity building that needs to happen. So it's not just about burdening one individual or two individuals on a board to say, you represent the Indigenous perspective, tell us all about it, rather than the whole board needs to come up with an intellectual position on how to do that rather than two individuals. Yes, yeah. Do you think there's appetite for that? I think there's definitely appetite for that. I think there's a lack of good quality consultants that can do that. And I think there's an opportunity there as a business opportunity for someone to do that kind of training. But I think they need to be a quite talented person to do it. It's not an easy role to to do both. But at the same time, I think there's an opportunity. And I don't have any answers for that, by the way. But I know that I've, I've engaged with some consultants who are absolutely amazing about I think punching through some of those verbal challenges at the beginning and some of the intellectual challenges to build the capacity of non-Indigenous boards. And I've seen that happen very successfully with some talented people. And I think they're completely overworked because they're so good. So there is an opportunity, but there's also a gap of talent to do that kind of work. Mm-hmm. But hopefully someone, maybe even listening to this, might have the yeah the thought to, to do that kind of work. But it's certainly needed. And I don't think it's just for um, First Nations people as well. I think you could build the capacity of boards to understand a, a multitude of cultural perspectives. Absolutely. Um, yes. Because, yeah, we don't just live within a monoculture in Australia. Multiple language, multiple cultures yes. that all contribute to Australian communities. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Who or what has inspired you most in your career? Mm. I've been asked this question before, and there's no one individual I could say that has done it because at the beginning of my career, I had been influenced by a quite, I suppose, almost militant view of politics. And so I was influenced by that, 
But as you mature and as you read more and engage with other people more, you begin to see, well, that's almost what you expect to have someone as a young academic and almost think that this is kind of a, a rite of passage. That and, you, and I've seen it over the years where young academics come with quite strong idealism. And so I was influenced by a few people in my early career around that. And over time, I, I started to think about that particular kind of ideology wasn't actually very productive. It wasn't kicking the goals. It wasn't actually making a difference in not only the lives that I was teaching, but also the lives in the communities that I say I, I kind of work with. So over time, I, I, I sought mentorship with all sorts of different people, and I picked out different qualities that I found within those people, and I thought, I think that's great. I think that's a really good thing, and I can really, I can feel that that's aligned with my own value system. But to tell you the truth, the most influential person that's influenced me academically has been my late professor, and he was my head of school and director, uh, Professor Rick Spear, and he passed away suddenly and tragically a few years ago. But he had a way in which he could think through incredible challenges to turn everything that might have been a challenge on a way to think about it differently. And I just admired that quality. And I, and I think that's what you call wisdom. You kind of get that with time, and I get that now. Uh, and you can't magically have wisdom sort of soaked up through your skin and into your brain. It's experience. It's your ability to digest new information, new knowledge and different ways of seeing the world. And so, yeah, so Rick has been one of my biggest influences. On my personal level, it's been my wife. And my wife's just amazing. You know, she's, uh, she's my wife, she's the mother of my children, but she's incredibly smart and I respect her enormously. But again, she's also someone that can see through challenges that I can't see through. And she's able to articulate to me, why can't you see it this way? You know, and that's the, it's a gift, I think. I think for me, when I see that in my wife, Selena, I, I say, wow, I just never thought of it that way. Yeah. yeah. So they're the two most influential people I've had. Right. Yeah. Mm. yeah. Um, you and I were chatting earlier about the Black Lives Matter movement that's taken over globally. What positive impact do you think it is having or can have? Yeah. Look, firstly, it's, it's about awareness raising because from what I've seen of many people I've talked to or if not seen on the media, they just said, we just didn't know this happened in Australia. They were just simply naive to the thought that this level of discrimination and racism happens in our backyard in Australia. And I think that's the most positive thing that's actually come out of this is that. And then... When you see the protests, you see a significant amount of non-Indigenous people marching with Indigenous people. So that tells me there's, there's a change in our, in our communities that we didn't have that kind of support in the 70s. We definitely didn't have it in the 80s, but things have started to change over the last 20-odd years in a positive way. And I think in more recent times, I think in the last 10 years, I think it's a significant shift. And I'm not really sure how or why that's changed, but I think access to information about people want to know stuff now. There's absolutely enormous amounts of information that people can access online to inform yourself. 
and even engage other people who have similar kinds of ideas or experience and, and feel collectively concerned about yeah. the treatment of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in this yeah. country. Yeah. Um, so I don't know how this may impact future elections, but I hope it does, that people look at public policy proposals from each side of parliament and really say, okay, we've got budget, we've got education, we've got health, and, and also what's happening with First Nations people in our country? What are you doing about that? And so asking those kinds of questions amongst all the other questions about public policy. So I hope that has an impact. I hope, I really hope that uh, protests aren't seen anymore as just disruptive citizens, but really citizens that really want to share a message. Yeah. Do you think it's also maybe made universities look at you know, their staff complement and how they haven't represented First Nations people and just, again, <clears throat> students, do you think it's made them say we need to step up? I can't talk about too many other universities because I haven't seen too much reaction, but the the senior leadership of Indigenous academics that I've involved with mm. report to me that there are some really positive things that have come out of that in terms of even, even a general statement from the Vice-Chancellor, for example, saying our university supports this, this and this. And so my university, for example, uh, came out before Black Lives Matter and, and said, we support the Uluru Statement from their heart. And we've got that as a public message to anybody. So when Black Lives Matter, I think this, I may and at down the track also put this to our university council as well and see if we've got a university position on this. Mm-hmm. But clearly, I think the impact of COVID-19 in higher education has impacted staffing levels, and I have no doubt that it has impacted Indigenous staffing levels within universities as well, because it certainly yeah. has impacted ours. Yeah. And so maybe it's maybe it's an opportunity now to do some reflecting from universities to say, I think we can do better. Yeah, yeah. In terms of building their career, what are your top tips for aspiring leaders? I touched on this before, and it really is looking at mentorship. What is it that you see as an inspiring leader in and around your vicinity? And you don't need to necessarily approach your your mentor and say, oh, you're my mentor today. Tell me what to do about this and this and this. I found the most effective way to be mentored is by being observant of behavior. If you want to alert your mentor that they are your mentor, that's fine as well. But for me, it's always been a quiet observance around how did that person change the way the outcome of that particular issue in a gentle, intellectual and thoughtful manner that actually is meaningful. I'm a value-driven person, so that's easy for me to do. So it's easy for me to look at someone and say, that aligns with my value system quite nicely. I think everybody has them, but sometimes not everybody reflects on them. So I think you should reflect on your value systems and they'll be challenged all the time and that's okay because your value systems isn't always the right way in the world, but it gives you some guidance on how to be a good person and how to improve being a good person. I think people need to read. People need to read and not absorb commentary that is not based on any foundation. And I give you the example of how we've in this country celebrated the shock jocks, you know, the Alan Joneses of the world and we continue to celebrate their poor and utter disgusting behaviour. Mm-hmm. And so it requires us to think and read more widely 
can take on board some of the political rhetoric that these people think to splurge in our media. And that helps us do a critique of the information that we that gets thrown at us in every kind of direction, from social media to television to everything else. So reading is incredibly important, and reading about your discipline is incredibly important, but reading broader than your discipline and looking at the other perspectives as well. You mightn't be an expert in another discipline, but certainly, for example, the Rio Tinto matter, no one has to be an archaeologist to see that that was an absolute and appalling treatment of an Aboriginal heritage site. So, but to go beyond the kind of the media and say, what really happened here? What was the kind of public policy environment that, that allowed this to happen? And so you're informed about a whole bunch of things rather than the mining company doing the most awful things mm-hmm. to our environment and our heritage sites. So, yeah, so being informed is incredibly important. It also came out in, uh, I can't remember, Donald Trump's former advisor who wrote this, you know, <laughs> who wrote the book recently and says... Oh, um, yeah. it happened in the room. That, that, yeah. yes, That's yes. exactly right. And he, yeah. he commented that the president doesn't read anything. So if you want to have an, a, a prime <laughs> example of someone who doesn't read, you yeah, have... Yes, yeah. Yes, say no more. Mm. <laughs> Thank you for that. That's been great.